Happy day after Christmas, happy Boxing Day, and happy beginning of Kwanzaa. And thank you for listening to Your Money, Your Wealth. Hopefully you're hunkered down next to the fireplace in your new warm, fuzzy socks from Aunt Carol. Though if you're in Southern California like us, you might be listening while running on the beach. Anyway, today on YMYW, Joe and Big Al do their best to explain what the Fed interest rate hikes mean for the economy and our portfolios and how we might be able to benefit from those rate hikes. Lindsay Stanberry, editor of the Refinery29 Money Diaries, will come in from the frosty cold of the East Coast a little later to tell us everything we wanted to know about our finances and everyone else's. And Joe and Big Al power through your email questions on state versus federal tax tax deductions, saving for retirement versus paying down debt, and taking RMDs on an inherited non-spouse Roth IRA. Plus, listen to find out why Joe said a while back that indexed annuities are some of the worst investments on the planet. I'm producer Andy Last, and here are Joe Anderson, CFP, and Big Al Clopine, CPA. First things first, uh, Fed met this week. Market didn't care for that much. No, not really. To say the least. Yeah. Can you explain what is the purpose of the Fed's meeting in increasing or decreasing interest rates, Alan? Uh, certainly. Uh, the Fed's... <laughs> <laughs> you you can I'm, I'm sort of prepared. So, at any rate, it's independent of the government, supposedly. But right. The, we, it, but, the, but there is interaction between the two. There's well, some, yeah, there, well, President Trump tweets... Yeah, right. It yeah. says, don't, don't raise, don't raise interest the rates. rates. And they say, I don't care. Yeah. We're independent. We're going to do it anyway. So anyway, the, the feds get together a few times a year. The feds? The fed. <laughs> the, the Federal Reserve Board. Okay, let me thank you. I mean, we're stupider than each other on this one. So <laughs> I'm going to do my best here. <laughs> anyway, the Federal Reserve Board. Yes. You go with that? Yes, I can. They, they meet a few times a year <laughs> yep. to determine whether they should change the uh, interest rate. The federal the, the fed- funds rate. The, 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 correct. Short-term Overnight yeah. rate. And that rate is is kind of a benchmark for, for borrowing and, and interest on savings and all kinds of stuff. So as rates go up, it's not a direct correlation like home mortgages, but they tend to go up eventually as well. Uh, savings on investment, like a, like a bank savings account, will tend to go up as well. And so I think a lot of people are... are and then on the other side, let's say if you get a you know credit card... Yeah, those yeah. interest rates you're going to be paying a little bit yeah, more. Yeah, th- those could go up as well. But Car then, loans. but then it's like, well, why do we raise rates? Because the stock market doesn't tend to like rates. Although that's not always true. I mean, there's been lots of times the rate has been raised and the stock market goes way up because it shows confidence in the economy and investors like that. Right. If there's cash flow within the overall economy, people can afford a little bit higher rate on their debt. Right. On the flip side, savers are getting a little bit more interest as they are lending their money out to certain institutions. Yeah. So I actually, uh, interestingly enough, I've got an article that talks about seven benefits of a Federal Reserve interest rate hike. Okay. It's not just to make Trump upset. There, there actually are benefits. The first one is there's higher returns for savers. Yeah. So people that have money in, in savings account, they can expect a higher interest rate. Uh, second one, which is something I learned way back in college in, in macroeconomics, is that's how you tame inflation. In other words, if you have too low of rates, the economy gets overheated, and that's where high inflation comes in into, into being. Well, inflation is just the cost of the goods and services that we are purchasing every day increase. Right. But, but yeah. how does raising interest rates then curb inflation? 
because Dr. Clopine. Because then there 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 tends to be a little bit less bar- cash flow. A, a little less. How, <laughs> I'm not an economist. I don't know the answer <laughs> to that question. I just know there's a there's a relationship between higher interest rate, which cools the economy, right? But also also uh, it tames higher inflation later. And and so in periods of time where interest rates are kept way too low for too long a period of time, that's always the danger. Is that you get much higher inflation? Japan, later on. for instance. Japan or United States in the 70s. I mean, you were. Just a little. I was a gleam in my guy. father's eye. Yeah, not, yeah, that's or right. My mother, I don't know how that works. Whatever. <laughs> they, each other's eyes. They were thinking about it. Anyway, so we had very high inflation. In fact, I and I. So my I graduated from college in late 1979, and that's and we just had a huge period of inflation that continued. And when I bought my first home in 19, in, inflation, high inflation, in interest rates are correlated. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. And so when I when I had a um, bought my first home in 1986. The interest rate I paid was 12 and a half percent, which seemed like a decent rate at the time because it had been 14 or more. Right, right. And then when I refinanced it to 10 percent a couple of years later, I thought, "Is this right? Is it possible to get a 10 percent mortgage?" And then I remember hearing my parents used to have a 5 percent mortgage, and I thought, "Well, how how is that possible?" Sure. And anyway, but I, I digress. That, that's one of the reasons why you raise rates is to keep inflation in check. And don't explain me. Don't ask me to explain why. Got it. That's that's what I've heard, and right. that's what people say. Okay. Um, there ten, there can be more lending, Joe, because then banks are actually making a little bit more money on the cost of capital. So so they're more willing to to lend, particularly if they're portfolio lenders. In other words, if they're if they're bringing in their own money and lending, they can get maybe even a better spread. There's more income for retirees. That's kind of like more savings account. Uh, you can sometimes have a stronger dollar uh, to, to boost purchasing power because other people around the globe, you know, it's, a, it's, you know, it's perceived as a stronger dollar. Uh, stocks will trade on fundamentals, which basically means they're not artificially high because interest rates are low. When we have more normalized interest rates, they're trading how they should based upon how companies are doing. So do you think in the past in the Fed manipulated the markets? I think during the Great Recession, they were so freaked out that they kept rates for low for a decade. And yes, I think that is a factor in why our stocks are as high as they are right now. Okay. One of many, All right. actually. Okay. Uh, and number seven, would-be home buyers may get off the fence because they're afraid, oh, rates are going to keep going up. I better buy while I can. But if you look at the 30-year Treasury, it's lower. It's actually gone down. Right. So the Fed fund rate is just the overnight rate that banks use. So yeah, I, I, it, there's there's definitely the trickle down effect. There is. Yeah. But I think people hear interest rates go up and then they might freak out. And then yeah. it's like, oh, the cost of my debt is going to increase. Well, if if all your debts on credit cards, then yes. But if you have the mortgages are not going to well, you know, overnight if you. If if you got a quote for a mortgage on Tuesday, and then on Thursday you look, right? It's not necessarily. Well, look up financials. I mean, I'm, I'm sure financials are just as down <laughs> as technology. So, so let me let me do a little caveat. So the seven things I just went over were from Mark Hamrick. I'm just reading an article. Yes, I don't know this. Stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I will freely admit I have a cursory knowledge of, of macroeconomics. <laughs> Well, you're a CPA. 
that, that has nothing to do with macroeconomics. It doesn't. That's it doesn't. like money, but, money in, money out. But what I think is a good thing is that the economy, if you look at the numbers, um, I guess depending on what numbers that you look at, I mean, you could go on both sides of the coin, right? You could say, oh, we're going to head to this recession and blah, blah, blah. But on the other side, I don't know, you, you, you hear the Fed and they're saying, well, you know, the economy is pretty strong. Uh, unemployment's pretty low. So, why not raise interest rates when we're in a strong economy? Right. Because we can't do it when we're blown up. Yeah, and that's the idea. Right? And so now what are we doing? We're just getting a buffer. So when things do get worse or bad, there's something that they potentially can do. We've got some tools. We've to, got tools to try, now to, try to stimulate the economy absolutely. When, when we need it. So I think it's a really good thing that we're increasing interest rates. That's just my personal opinion. And again, why is it? I am uh, <laughs> not an economist, but if you if we're going to do things that can add a little bit of cushion um, in tools, that when the economy does go down, that they can do something to help spurt. Because Japan, they didn't do anything, right? They kept interest rates so low, and then right. that's why you look at the long extent of. Uh, you, you know, Japan's economy is is not it, great. It, it was down for twenty five years, I want to say, right? Something like that. You know, and so if if they're acting when things are good, uh, but the market is like, okay, well, here, what well, what are they going to do? They're they're overreacting. Um, sure. And so you look at still Brexit. What the hell? I don't even know what the hell is going on over there. <laughs> I don't think they do either. I don't think so either. <laughs> they're trying to figure out how to get out of the, the stay. And, and, and then now they're like, well, maybe we were kidding. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we didn't really mean it. <laughs> we didn't mean it. I don't know. There was some crazy guy that was kind of leading us. <laughs> we got influenced. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. I don't, and then what? And then we got some political BS going on here. We got to build a wall or else the, you know, or, yeah, or government, the government shut down. Shut down. Yeah, right. That's like... Yeah, it's just like these little things just add up to a, a little bit more of a, a, a hornet's nest, and people freak out. It adds to the confusion, and the market doesn't like uncertainty. Yes, but if if this is not people are referring back to two thousand eight, which is so stupid to me. Two thousand eight was a crisis. People were writing loans on shell paper. <laughs> People didn't have income, and they were had you know seven hundred thousand dollars in debt. This is nothing like two thousand eight, but I think this is the first time in in a, several years where we're feeling real volatility in the markets. Yes, and it's like, oh my god, here we go again. Get me the hell out of the market. Get me. Oh no, let's go to cash. Let's do this. Oh no, this is normal. And if you're going to freak out because of this volatility. Then you have to a relook at your goals. You have to relook at what you're trying to accomplish because if you go to cash, when are you going to get back in? That's the problem. I'm going to get back in when the market starts going down. Yes, and then you've missed the recovery, <laughs> right? Because the sharpest, highest days that happen. Let's say if the market dropped four percent one day, usually the best day in. The market is the next day the or, next or day. very soon after. And you're not necessarily going to react. And, and that's the problem because people think, okay, I'm going to get out because it seems kind of it, it seems kind of rough right now. And then it's like they never get back in because there, there, there will be a bottom at some point, And then it starts going up, and there's always this thing. It's, well, this is fake. This isn't really a recovery. Yeah, well, I remember us talking about the, that in 08, the like dead, the double dead, 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 dead cat, cat bounce and all this other stupid the, stuff. Yeah, the, the W but recovery. But he, here's the deal, is that if you can run your overall financial plan 
and look at all the assumptions that you're running with inflation, taxes, your cash flow, what you believe is going to come in as income, and run it at a 2% rate of return and you can still accomplish your goals, then go to cash. Right. But I bet 95% of individuals cannot do that because they haven't saved enough. And then most of you have taken on way too much risk to begin with because we got complacent with a very good market for 10 years. And then now a little bit of volatility comes up. Guess what? That return that you just received, you lost four, five, seven, ten percent of it. Now you're going to bail. That whole ten years of return that you that you thought you were so good at a, being an investor, it's gone. You lost it because you got out. You have to man up here and figure out what the hell are you doing with your overall money, and do the right thing to make sure that you have the right portfolio given what your situation is. Because a lot of times, no one's really going to give them a hard message. You know, that's totally unbiased about their overall capital. Alan, I don't care about your money. You care about your money. <laughs> True. Right? But if if they have logic of saying, okay, well, if you do this, here's the consequences, and you're fine with that. But it's so hard to because we're so emotional with it at the time. Oh, my God, I'm down $100,000. I can't live, you know. And as soon as I get retired, I look at my money a lot more than I should. Right. And then we make poor decisions, and that's the problem. I love this stuff. I can't wait for it to go down another 10%. Then I'm going to freak the hell out. (laughs) (laughs) Then we're going to have a different show. (laughs) Uh, But, right? Complacency, Alan. Yes. Are you nervous? N- uh, me personally, no, not at all. Yeah. Because in in my view, and and I completely agree with you, this is how markets work. They go up, they come down, they trend up over the long term. The thing is, is you just need to figure out what your own goals are. Figure out what sort of money you need from your portfolio if you're in retirement, and then have enough safety in your portfolio and really safe investments that you can tap that during market periods like this. Jerry Paul, Jerome, chairman, fifth straight quarter. So we're looking. Uh, what, what did we do? Uh, Twenty-five basis points. We rates. did. Yeah. Yep. And uh, he said it's appropriate with a very healthy economy. Right. So if that's their belief, Jerome Powell, their, he's a pretty smart guy. That's what their forecasts say. And um, <clears throat> yes, stocks looked at that and said, "Yeah, I don't care for that much." Yeah, we don't want higher interest rates. <laughs> yeah, we don't want. That sounds like you want to slow down the economy. Um. So with rising interest rates, we talked, right, it's going to affect a little bit of credit cards, car loans, uh, but then that will trickle um, down to probably mortgages at some point. Um, I don't know. It, it's not going to affect it tomorrow, but at, at some point. Yeah, I mean, overall, savings rates should go up over time. Mortgage rates, I mean, anything tied to interest will go up uh, as a result of these rates going up. Um, but, you know, the weeks ahead of that, um, the markets were very volatile because sure. we were feeling that the economy was slowing. That was the concern. But then Jerry Powell comes in and says, you know what? We have a very strong economy, so we're going to raise interest rates by 25 basis points. Right. So who's right? <laughs> I don't right? know. Is this the weirdest thing? Yeah. It, so, he, hey, the, the economy's good. All right, let's blow up the stock market. <laughs> Here's what I want to do. I want to read Brian Perry, our director of research's uh, researcher's note, because I think it's really good. What was that? Director, was director of research. Director the of note from our director of research, Brian Perry. Can, can you say what I'm trying to say, please? I'm not doing too well today. Anyway, this I think this is what people need to hear right now. Right. P- political uncertainty 
and concern about slowing economic growth have led to the volatility in the financial markets. These volatile periods can create a temptation to try to move in and out of the market. However, in the absence of perfect foresight and timing, it is seldom a good idea. That's because the best days often occur in proximities to the worst days, and missing those best days have a stunning negative impact on your performance. In fact, missing just three days a year over the past two decades could have reduced your performance by more than 13%. And it is pretty interesting, and Joe, you referenced this, when there are steep declines, you tend to have your best market days right after. And those that get out of the market because they think it's it's time to get out, they miss those days where it goes up. So I'll continue. So rather than trying to time in and out of the market, we think it makes more sense to utilize volatility in order to accelerate the use of tax last harvesting. Ultimately, this pra- rebalancing, I yeah, think, is very yeah, appropriate too. Exactly. Ultimately, this practice allows for more efficient uh, future income, tax-efficient income, because it lowers taxes across your lifetime, creating these losses to net against future gains. It puts more money in your pocket. But most importantly, while volatility is an inherent feature in the stock market, is it's important to accept that ultimately no one can control what the market is going to do next week, next month, or even next year. He said it's Jerry Powell. Yeah, except for him. He, he knows. <laughs> he controlled a little bit of it. So this is what Brian writes. He says, however, comprehensive financial planning can give you knowledge of whether you will still be on track to meet your financial goals next month, next week, next year. Uh, and because of that, that's it comes back to financial planning. Do you have the right portfolio for your goals and for your financial plan? If you do, then don't worry about this volatility. Right. It gains a lot more confidence is the bottom line. I don't think you can ever get the fear out of you. Right. Uh, you, you know, you look at it, you're like, oh, my God, the markets are down. Let's not look at it. You know, someone told me not to look at it. Don't look at it. Don't look at it. Yeah. But then you keep on hearing the doom and gloom and how much the markets are, are, are creating. It's like, oh, God, I got to look at it. You know, it's like if you ever got a gunshot wound and they told you not to look at it, but you just have to. No, I'm the only one. No, I haven't. Fortunately, I haven't done that, but yeah. I'm sure you have. Well, that's all this feels like. It's like, I can't look. I don't want to do this. But then you're just like, oh, God. Then you look. And you're like, yeah. oh, my God. Yeah. I can't. Right. Then that, that it's very, very difficult. I get it. We're, we're all emotional creatures. And when it comes to our money, we're extremely emotional about it. It's like it's with the brain, you know, right. all these behavioral finance people. It's like, you know, losing money, gaining money. You know, it's like almost as good or better than sex. It's, um, it, it is for you, right? Okay. All right. Anyway, moving on. So perfect timing this week. It's the doom and gloom episode of the Your Money, Your Wealth TV show talking about threats to your retirement income. Watch online at yourmoneyyourwealth.com and click special offer to download our retirement income strategies white paper for free. Subscribe to the TV show on YouTube because the fellas are promising unicorns and rainbows next week. Now let's get to answering your money questions. Send yours to info at purefinancial.com or click the Ask Joe and Al on the air button at yourmoneyyourwealth.com and check out the fellas' video responses to these emails in today's podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. You know, I like this one. This was uh, from uh, Dimitri uh, in San San Diego. He goes, hey, Joe, where can I get federal and California state tax forms? Can I take the standard deduction on federal forms and itemize on California state forms? So that's interesting, and I want to talk a little bit about that. Okay. Because there's the new tax reform, 
Dimitri's thinking, maybe I filed the standard deduction because I have certain deductions that I had last year that I itemized that I won't be able to do on the federal return. But wait a minute, what does California, does that conform with the same as federal tax? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And the first one, really quickly, all you have to do is type in uh, IRS tax forms, California tax forms, and you'll, you'll find the sites. You can get to any form you want to. A lot of the 2018 forms are already out, but not all of them. So some of those will come later. But the second question, maybe the little deeper question, is itemizing. And so just a, maybe a little background, Joe. So an itemized deduction is otherwise personal expenses that the IRS allows you to deduct against your income. So you pay taxes on taxable income after those deductions. And so it's typically it's, it's state taxes, property taxes, mortgage interest, charity, things like that. And so you add all those together. And then you you compare your total against what's called the standard deduction, and you get to deduct the higher of the two. So this year with the new tax act, the standard deduction is much higher. It's about twice as much as it was the year before. And so what's happening is then a lot of people that used to itemize on the federal return because their real deductions were higher will no longer do that. They'll use the standard deduction. And the question is, do I have to use the standard deduction for state? The answer is no. You can itemize for one and use the standard deduction for another or vice versa. And as a matter of fact, a lot of people will still be itemizing on the state return because the state of California did not conform to the Federal Tax Act. And that's typical. The state of California hardly ever conforms to the Federal Tax Act. So when you look at California law, for example, and your state may be different, may be similar, but when you look at California law where we're at, it's a, it's a whole mixture of prior federal laws, some of which were conformed years ago, and then lots of the new laws were not conformed. It's tricky, but you think about it. In the federal return, you can only deduct $10,000 for state taxes and property taxes. The state did not conform. Now, you cannot deduct state taxes on the, on the state return, but you can deduct as much as you want in property taxes. That's still true. Miscellaneous itemized deductions is gone for federal purposes. It's still there for state. So if you have unreimbursed job expenses or tax prep fees or financial planner fees or investment management fees, those are still deductible on the state return. So you got <laughs> to do taxes nowadays. It's not as simple as it would <laughs> right? seem, right? Yeah. All right. So this is the old law, but we're still applying the old law to, to California. California. And I'm sure you have to check your state. Yeah. You know, whatever state that you live in because did they conform or not to conform? Because so, you could yeah. be leaving money on the table there. Let's say if you do your own return, you know, right. by hand, I guess TurboTax would help you with that. But yeah, yeah, you maybe. just want to be careful to make sure that all right, did my state conform with the the tax reform or the Tax and Jobs Act and it, what did they or did not conform with? Yeah, yeah, and and uh, I had a great point. I just forgot it. So That's never right. mind. Move okay. On. <laughs> all right. <clears throat> let's um, move on. We have, let's see, Mark from Los Angeles, California. He goes, should I save in a Roth IRA even though I save in a 401k? Uh, well, I think there's two questions here, Mark. Is it should or can? Should I save in a Roth IRA even though I save in a 401k? Well, yeah, if you can save as much as, I would say save as much as you can if you're fully funding a 401k plan. Uh, should you save in a Roth IRA? Sure. Um, I, I think more importantly is that what people get confused is, can I? Because I'm already taking advantage of my employer plan, can I still 
save in an IRA? Yeah, and and the answer is yes. In other words, a four hundred one k maxes out at what, what's the? I guess two thousand eighteen, it's eighteen thousand five hundred dollars. Two thousand nineteen, it's going to be nineteen thousand dollars, and it's six thousand extra if you're fifty and older. And so that's that's one set of rules. The IRA and Roth IRA rules are completely separate from that, so you can actually still contribute to those even if you do a, a 401k. The only problem is two things. A traditional IRA may or may not be deductible, depending upon your income level, by contributing to 401k. And number two is a Roth contribution may not be allowable if your income is too high. So you've got to be aware of both of those things. Yeah, we would encourage both because that will give you a little bit of tax diversification. So you'll have a little bit in a Roth that's tax-free coming out when you retire, and then the 401k is pre-tax. So that would be income taxable to you when you pull that out in retirement. Now, now let me ask it, the question a little different way. And and some in some cases, they should save into both, but they don't have enough resources. Okay. Right? So should they do the 401k? Or, or the Roth or some combination. Yeah. The answer is some combination. Yeah. The rule that I came up with. <laughs> By Joe Anderson. Yes. And the, the trademark. Yes. And I'm sure no one else has ever thought of this. <laughs> is, I know I've repeated it because <laughs> it sounded good. Save to the 401k to the match. First. First. First step is. So, so let's say f- four grand of your salary equals the match. So you do that first, yep. $4,000. Then from there, you stop the 401k contributions. Then you go to Roth IRA. Okay. Maximize the Roth IRA all the way to the limit. Okay. So that would be $5,500. Right. Right. So I'm assuming that we're under 50. Yeah. And if you're over 50, just add 1000 bucks. Then from there, if you still want to save money, you go back to the 401k, and then you max that out. Okay. Up to the 18500 $18, Okay. And then you're not done yet. Then you look at your tax return, and then you see what your taxable income is after you've done that savings, right? And then I would convert, if I was in the 10 the 12 or the 22% tax bracket, I would absolutely convert to the top of the 22% tax bracket in this environment. Got it. And so I, I would... I think I mainly agree with that. I, I would certainly convert if I was in the 10 or 12 percent, the 22 percent. I would, I would put it this way. I would likely want to convert, but I would look at other factors. Yeah. I mean, that's not the, I guess, for sure. <laughs> just, just compliance, you know. Yes. Thank you, Alan. Uh, 24, you have to look at. 22, yeah. I think it's um, pretty much it's, it's, it's a, pretty close. It's, 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 a, it's, it's a, a good strategy. It, it's a good strategy for many. Yes. Put it that way. So, yeah, that's the Joey Anderson's rule of savings. Okay, I'll try to go along with that. TM. What about if you have credit card debt? Keep, what, what's your order? Who, who cares? <laughs> so, get some more? We could, yeah, well, why not? Um, you can do the avalanche or you can do oh the snowball. Snowball, yeah. Um, I'm more of a snowball kind of guy. Uh, let me think what I am. The snowball is this it's, is that you look at, so you, you put your credit, all your debt, and you look at the balance of the debt. Yeah. And then the oh, you go for the lowest rates. one first. Then you go to the lowest balance of the yeah, credit card you, first. You pay it off to get excited. Yeah. Then it snowballs. Yeah. Right. You're like boom. Yeah. Got it's it. like you, when you start working out, Alan. You know. Yeah. It's but not, wait, does that come before or after you're saving to your I'm company saving. match and all of well, that? Okay, I would go company match first and foremost. Right. Then before I go to the Roth, then I would maybe snowball a couple things. 
And then if I had some cash, then I would go to the Roth. So I'd want to. Here's here's what I don't want you to do is just do one or you've got to do a little bit of all. A little, little combination. A little yeah. bit of combination no, I, of I, all. I agree with that. Because here's what happens with people that will just all of a sudden focus 100% solely on debt. They'll pay it off, and then something happens. The car breaks down, you know, health injury, whatever, and then all of a sudden they go back into debt. Yeah, so they didn't get anywhere. So they didn't have – there, there's no liquidity. Mer- no emergency. they got to build up cash. they got to stay for retirement. they got to pay off the debt and everything else. So yeah. you have to strategize that way. So I, I would say I'm probably more of an avalanche guy. Yeah, because you're a CPA. <laughs> So avalanche, if I remember correctly, you pay out the I, highest interest rate first. Yeah, you pay. Yeah, the one. Yeah, exactly. The highest interest rate, and and I I actually kind of like the idea of spreading it a little bit too. So doing a little bit of, of each, but I would I would definitely focus on the higher interest rate one because then I'd be in better shape financially. Uh, all right, we got Linda. You like her first sentence? Hi, Joe and Big Al. I love your show! Exclamation point. Thank you, Linda. I was listening last Saturday to the discussion about Roths. Hmm. I wonder, was that every Saturday? (laughs) And I was fortunate enough to inherit a Roth from my sister who passed away two years ago, sadly. I have uh, received conflicting information from three different CPAs regarding the RMDs and taxes. My sister left this money in the form of a Roth, so I wouldn't have to pay taxes on the withdrawals. But I've been told that because it's not a spouse-inherited Roth... I must take RMDs because I'm 77 years old and pay taxes on the withdrawal. Do you concur? I would appreciate your information so much. Please keep up the good work while you also make it entertaining. Linda, thank you so much. That's a nice email. And those are good questions that I think a lot of people mix up. So I will say uh, yes to one thing. You have to take a required minimum distribution, even on a Roth IRA, when it's an inherited Roth that's a non-spousal Roth. If you're not the spouse, then you have to take a required minimum distribution. However, it's at any age. It doesn't matter how old you are. You could be 20 and have to take it. And the most important thing is you don't pay any taxes. There is no taxes due on this. So yes, you have to take an RMD, but there's no taxes to pay. Roth IRAs, when... You are the sole owner of a Roth. There is no required minimum distribution. When, so when you're, you, the, yeah, you're the one that put the money in. You do not. If you're the owner of the account, you yep. do not have to take the money out of the account <clears throat> ever if you don't want to. Um, if you pass away and your spouse is the beneficiary of that, the spouse does not have to take money out of that account ever. If you are a non-spouse beneficiary, which you are, Linda, then yes, you have to take a required distribution. All non-spouse beneficiaries have to take a required distribution based on their life expectancy, no matter what their age. That's what Alan just said. Uh, But three CPAs did not know this information, uh, which is shocking to me. Crazy. So, yeah, they were right. Yeah, Because uh, I guarantee you, if Linda was, let's say, um, under the age of 70... They would say, oh, you don't have to. They would say you don't have to take an RMD until you turn 70 and a half. Yeah, yes, you do. And that's that's true of any inherited IRA or Roth IRA. You have to take a required minimum distribution. And that's surprising to some people. Like, they're, they're, they're a kid. They're 15 years old. You have to take an RMD if it's an inherited IRA. And unfortunately, you cannot put that Roth IRA into your... Let's say own Roth IRA. Correct. We've seen individuals that have done that before, and what that would be uh, really bad for you, Linda. That would just blow up the entire Roth. It would all be distributed out. There would be no 
taxes tax, on it. But you lost your Roth. But you lost the, the tax deferment and the tax-free treatment of all future earnings. That's right. Uh, so, yeah, you can send this video to the CPAs uh, that... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're going to send it to you so that, you have it. it that, uh, that, that did not um, perform their fiduciary duty. Or maybe they just were incompetent. Could be, or maybe she just didn't hear them right. Oh, look at you stick up for the CPAs. <laughs> I am a CPA after all. I bet this, those CPAs were wrong. <laughs> That's you as a CFP would yes, say that. And I, no, I'm sticking up for Linda because I'm sure she explained it perfectly. Well, I, she's a listener of our show, Al, and she likes our show. So, it, yeah, the I, CPAs blew up. <laughs> In a recent episode of YMYW, this is uh, Steve from Vista, California. Uh, jo- did he write YMYW, or is, are you just abbreviating? No, he did. Oh, that's badass. Thanks, Steve. <laughs> he's what? He's a fan. Yeah, it's YMYW. Uh, Joe stated that index annuities are some of the worst investments on the planet. Why does he believe this? Well, right. Why do you believe that? Is that or is that? Do you believe that? One of the worst investments on the planet, not, and not the, the the product itself is fine. The sales tactics behind it w- makes it the worst product. Okay, because if there was more transparency behind the product itself, it wouldn't the, sell as much. Would it, it would not sell at all. At all. It here, here's here's the here's the rationale behind what I'm saying. Okay. The sales tactics of indexed annuities is you can receive stock market-like returns with zero downside risk. Yeah, which sounds great. And then they, you look at charts. We'll look at the S&P 500, right? Look at the up, but then look at these sharp, um, sharp declines. Well, with this product, you will never receive any of these sharp declines. We lock in your gains, and you'll never lose any money. What is true about that statement is, yes, they lock in gains. You will never lose money in a fixed annuity. It's guaranteed by the insurer. It's not an investment. It's an insurance contract. It's it's insurance policy. Call it an annuity. And why do you buy an annuity is to have some sort of guarantees. You're transferring risk to an insurance company for some sort of guarantee. There is not any chance you are going to get stock market-like returns because you're not invested in the stock market. What they're doing is basically they're buying zero-coupon bonds and buying call options on the bond on an S&P or whatever index that you choose. So you're not receiving any dividends from the S&P 500, right? You're getting certain gains from the S&P, right? Total gain, but you're not getting any type of dividend from that because you're not invested in it. It's not an investment. It's insurance. Plus, you have to look at participation rates. So let's say that the call option or whatever does 4%, but you only have a 20 or 40 or 60 or 80% participation rate. So you don't get 100% of it. You get something less. Then there's caps. You might get a cap of 1% to 2% per month, depending on if it's point to point on a 12-month, 24-month basis. So you have to read the fine print to figure out what, what, what you're getting. Just buy a fixed annuity or a CD. The commissions are very, very low on those types of products. On an indexed annuity, you will make someone very rich because they're lying to you in some cases about how the product actually works. So the product itself, it's fixed, it's guaranteed. I like all of that, but I just the, the sales tactics behind it is what I don't care for. 
Not that Joe didn't just make himself crystal clear on this topic, but if you'd like to hear more of Joe and Big Al's thoughts on various different types of annuities, you'll find all kinds of links in the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Now next week, Marcus Garrett from the Paychecks and Balances podcast will give us some financial New Year's resolutions that really work. Later in January, Devin Carroll of the Big Picture Retirement Podcast and Social Security Intelligence blog will tell us how sex can save Social Security. We'll also talk to Chris Hogan, host of The Chris Hogan Show and author of the upcoming book, Everyday Millionaires. Visit yourmoneyyourwealth.com to subscribe and listen for free on demand and to catch up on transcripts and videos from past episodes. Now, let's talk about everything you ever wanted to know about your finances and everyone else's with Lindsay Stanberry. She's the Work and Money Director at Refinery20. An editor of the new book, Refinery29 Money Diaries. So we got Lindsay Stansberry on the line. We do. Did I say that correctly? No. Stanberry. <laughs> there you go. Stanberry. All that practice. I got a, I got a big fat tongue and it uh, All that practice up. and I, it, didn't, I know. it didn't work it, out. It, it took four weeks I was practicing your name, Lindsay, <laughs> so I'm very apologetic. It's okay. Uh, she wrote a phenomenal book. Yes, I know. We have it right here. Did you uh, take a glance at it? I did. I think you're lying to Lindsay right in front of you. I looked at the table of contents. I mean, if I'm being honest, I, I got that far. That's pretty good. Yeah. Hey, Lindsay, help us out. Um, you work for a company called Refinery29. I'm a single gentleman in his early 40s. Alan is a very old man <laughs> in his 60s. Really old. And um, so we're not too familiar uh, with your company. Can you briefly explain to our audience, you know, what you do, what your company does, and then we can dive into the book? Yeah, sure. So Refinery29 is a, a global media company um, focused on women's media. Um, we started as a fashion and beauty website more than 15 years ago now. Um, but these days we cover everything, news and politics, um, health and wellness, uh, lots of beauty, entertainment, and I oversee the work and money section, which is focused on careers and personal finance. And almost three years ago now, we launched a series called Money Diaries, which is a daily financial column where young women share their spending for a week. It's anonymous, and they go into details like their salary, how much they pay in rent, how much they're investing in their 401k. And then they also share details about their relationships, their jobs, everything you can imagine. It is absolutely genius because I've been doing this 20 years and I read all sorts of financial planning books and, you know, I kind of skim through them because they're pretty boring and, you know, it's, it's dry. It's, you know, it gets technical and sometimes it doesn't get too technical and there's not, you, you know, it's just kind of the same old, same old. But what I thought with your book, first of all, how did you come up with the idea of money diaries? So do people come in? Because the diaries that are actually in the book, it, it feels like I'm doing something that I shouldn't be doing is reading someone else's <laughs> personal diary. Right. Which it's is, like is very in. cool, by the way. Um, but yeah. also, I kind of feel a little guilty when I was reading. No, you shouldn't feel guilty. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the idea is that we're really trying to encourage women and, and people in general to be more open about their finances. But then I also think that there's this element of like, oh, I, I see myself in this. And so traditionally we talk about money and it's kind of this like crazy, distant, complicated topic. Personal finance, I think, can be really confusing. But the truth of the matter is, is that you need money to fuel the life you want. And having the skills to be able to do that isn't that difficult. And so when you relate it to, you know, things as simple as buying a cup of coffee or figuring out what apartment you want to rent, 
and relating that back to how you earn and spend and save, it really levels the playing field. Without question. And I think it's such a taboo topic to a lot of individuals, right? It's like, I don't really want to share um, how much money I make or how good I am with money. Do I own my house? Do I rent? You know, am I, you know, should I be embarrassed if I don't own a home, yeah. you know, if I'm in my 30s or 40s or, or, or whatever? And so as you read through some of these diaries, it, you're absolutely right. It kind of brings you back and say, you know what, there's so many people like me. I mean, yeah. I think this, this first one was uh, my ex-girlfriend, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the sense of humor on this person is absolutely phenomenal. You know, She's so funny. Yes, it was like I was like, man, I, I want to read her diary all day long. But yeah. then how you come into it is like, okay, well, here's her life in, in a snapshot of a let's say a week, and then you come in and saying, all right, well, here's some solid steps that that individual could take to enhance their life, and then we get into the lives of like several different individuals, you know, couples that are, you know, maybe one spouse is making more than the other spouse. You know, hey, how do I afford kids? How do I pay off debt? And there's every aspect of the financial spectrum that you go through. Um, so uh, just kudos to you. It just it, it was a really fun read. Thank you. It was fun to write it. Let's kind of get into the nuts and bolts of some tactics that, that people can, can use. Um, because I think in the beginning, it's like, all right, well, there's this 50-30-20 formula. Can you kind of go into detail a little bit more about what that formula is and how should people utilize that? Sure. So the 50-30-20 the formula was a concept made popular by Elizabeth Warren and her daughter. They wrote a great financial book more than 10 years ago. And the idea is that you really start thinking about how much money you're bringing in versus how much is going out. So 50% should be going to fixed expenses, your rent, your health care, your food and groceries. 30% goes to flexible spending. That's, you know, the, the more fun stuff, your Netflix account, going out to dinner, new clothes, the things that you don't necessarily need. And then 20% is really supposed to be going toward future you. 10% of that to retirement typically, and then 10% to, I don't know, vacation next year. We also think about it as a, an 80-20 rule that makes it a little bit more manageable for people who live in cities where there's a high cost of living that just combines the fixed and flexible. Maybe your fixed expenses are creeping over to more like 60 or even 70%. But the most important thing is that 20% is going to some kind of savings, which most Americans, it's not the case. Yeah, but I think it's a good frame point, um, you know, framework um, because it's like, well, here, I'm saving a couple hundred bucks to my retirement account. Is is that good? And if someone doesn't really know how to do, a, you know, calculations to say, well, compounding 200, yes, that's, that's great. But if you're making $100,000 a year or $80,000 a year, that's probably not going to be enough to, to, to provide you a lifestyle that you're accustomed to when you need the money later. Yeah. Definitely. But I also think that it's, you know, remembering things like your emergency fund. We did a study at Refinery where we found that one in four women that had less than $250 in their savings account, which is really worrisome because if they have a big emergency, they're just not going to have the funds to cover it. And then it's going to go on a credit card and that it just ends up being so much more expensive. So if you're living paycheck to paycheck, then how do you turn it around? I think it's really sitting down and figuring out how much you have coming in and how much is going out and where you're spending the money. I like to joke that you should actually do a money diary 
you don't have to necessarily publish it on Refinery29, but it is a really good exercise in mindfulness. I'm not a big fan of the idea of budgets. I think that, you know, saying that $50 this month is going to eating out and $100 is going to my groceries, I feel like that can be very constrictive. And when you mess up or you overspend, it just makes you feel bad. But if you're more mindful and you think like, when you go to the grocery store, you look at the prices of the food and you pay attention to the total before you swipe. I so often leave the grocery store thinking, how, what did I just spend it on and how much was that total? And I wasn't even paying attention when I was signing my credit slip. You know what I thought another really good idea was is to calculate your hourly wage. And so let's say if your hourly wage, if someone gets a salary, you know, let's say you make $60,000 a year, but they don't really equate that to, well, how much do I make an hour? And then yeah. you go out to happy hour, and next thing you know, it's like, well, oh, my God, I just spent three hours of my paycheck on a bar. Was that too much? Why you I was, don't yeah, judge. I was going to say, in your case, it'd be <laughs> an entire day, It, it, it might have been, been a week. <laughs> I just spent the week's pay at the bar. <laughs> and God, it was fun. But I, that hangover is going to be twice as bad because I'm going to feel like crap from just a physical standpoint, but then my mental capacity yeah, but, but is going to blow up. Do you, do you remember how much fun but, it was? No. Yes. Yeah. Well, in, in the process. <laughs> but right, you know, I, I thought that was a really clever idea to say, well, wait a minute here. You know, do, do I really need this or do I really need that? That's like four hours of work or that could be a week's work or wh whatever the case may be. Yeah, and the idea is like no judgment on it. Maybe maybe that night out at the bar was worth it. Maybe that's why you work, so you can go to the bar. Lindsay, uh, you know me well. <laughs> that's like, cool. But you've like known him for 20 years. <laughs> I felt going into this book that, you know, there's a lot of judgment around personal finance advice. And we're made to feel so bad about the way we spend our money. And I think that if you can figure out a way to save and be paying down any debt that you might have, you really should feel empowered to, to spend the rest of it and not feel guilty about how you spend it. And, you know, I make the joke in the book a lot that I won't ever tell you not to buy a latte because I always hated that personal finance advice. Some mornings I just really need a latte. But when you begin to think about how much that costs, if it's like a $5 a day habit, you know, that equals almost $2,000 before the end of the year. And maybe there are better things you could do with that $2,000. One of the best, and I have it earmarked here. See this, Alan? You came prepared. I did. Yeah. Because I really enjoy this book. Yes. Because I learned a lot, actually. Um, here's one. 21 questions everyone should ask uh, their romantic partner. Oh, okay. So I'm not... Um, now, is this before you become romantic or, or just your... This is how I become romantic. This is how, this is how <laughs> it This happens. is the how-to guide. Got it. When That's... I go on my first dates, I'm just going to read these 21 <laughs> questions, and it's going to be phenomenal. That would be an interesting first date. <laughs> well, we could film it. And then maybe we could put it on your... <laughs> and and yes, we'll see how it goes. I would like to, if you want to film it, and, and we can run it on Refinery29, please. I would love that. <laughs> but I, I think when it comes to relationships and money, um, what's the number one reason for divorce in most cases? It's, right, that's it, what they say. Right, well, yeah, it's finance. In some yeah, cases. Yeah, no, you're right. It's, there's other stuff, but that's that's a common, That's probably the most common. Right? And so, you know, there's, I think people need to know if you're going to have a romantic spouse, uh, right. a partner, right. um, it would be good to get some of these questions But you have to be careful how you, I mean, you can't just first date rapid what's your, fire. What's your FICO, FICO score? Yeah. How yeah. much money you got in your wallet right now? Right. What's your emergency funds? <laughs> 
But how but, did you? I'm sorry. How did you come up with these questions? It, um, because they're great, and I, and I can um, throw out a couple here. Yeah. Well, I I mean, you know, think about it. Like the money comes up on the very first date. Who's going to pay the bill? And that almost begins the dynamic of the relationship from the very start. And I've talked to so many different women about this. Everyone has very different opinions about it. Some people feel like the man should pay. Some people don't want to even have the conversation. I think you should talk about it. That's my opinion. But I think that from there, that builds the confidence of having these conversations about money. I also think that it's really romantic to talk about money with your partner because you're planning for a future and, and that's really exciting. So I really wanted to kind of take away some of the awkwardness and stigmas around it. It's not always going to be easy, but if you have a, you know, a script to take with you, I think that does, you know, at least give you an entry point. Let me ask you this, um, because you did the research. I go out on a date and if I go, Hey, let's go halvesies on this. To me, I've never done that. I've always paid. And mm-hmm. But if someone goes, if the girl goes to me and says, you know what, I want to pay half, and I'll be like, no, I'll just pay for it. And if she insisted, then I'd be like, all right, this date was awful. <laughs> right? Because that's really? what's going on in my head. It's like, okay, if she wants to pay for her half, she's like, all right, but we're probably never going to go on another date again. I've heard men say that they feel like it, it sends a clear message that you're in the friend zone. Exactly. <laughs> I don't like the friend zone, Lindsay. <laughs> I, I mean, I can understand that. Or, or if uh, they pay for the whole thing. Yeah, they're if, like, hey, I'm like, going to pay for this thing and fact, I'm going to go to the bathroom. In fact, waiter, check, please, quickly. <laughs> <laughs> they actually sneak out and pay the check and leave without saying goodbye. Right. That's that, one way to do it, too. I don't know. I mean, you know, why do you, why do you think it's a bad date if she wants to split the bill? Well, I don't know. I guess maybe I'm a little old school in, in that. He's from Minnesota. Right? And I so it's, I, I, I just feel that, hey, you know, I asked you out. Or even if she asked me out, usually that's the case. They ask you out? Oh, of course. Yeah. It, and then they I'm say, kidding. then they say, here's the bill. <laughs> I really want to go to this new fancy restaurant and yeah. just eat yeah. and then have you pay. Right. But, yeah. no, I, but, but if, if we split the bill, I don't know. It just kind of feels, all right, I, I, I would split the bill with a coworker. You know, mm-hmm. or a friend. I'd be, but you know, if I'm on a date, I don't. It, it, it that would just feel awkward to me, I guess. I, and I think that that's you know great that you know that, and I think that's important going into like dating, and probably deciding who's compatible with you, right? You know that from the beginning, and I think that if the woman wants to pay her half, maybe you just aren't compatible. Very tactfully said, Lindsay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we don't ever talk about financial compatibility, but maybe we should. Well, I think Joe's all over it. He's still looking at the questions here. Yeah. <laughs> so, what are some of the questions, Joe? Um, how do you manage your money? Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, Lindsay, I, I'm I'm curious to know: Did you actually end up asking any of these questions of the man who is now your husband? I'm trying to think if I can remember them all. Hey, how much money you make? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can I see your statements? Well, you know how I found that out was we were renting an apartment together. I think a lot of people find that out, right? You're filling out the forms, and then you're like, oh, that's how much you make. Um, you know, we've had a lot of these conversations about the things that we want to do and how we're going to afford things. We don't always get it right by any shot. He's an extremely frugal person and is also an extremely patient person because I talk and write a lot about his <laughs> money habits. But, yeah, I, I think that we talked about how much the engagement ring that he bought should cost and how we were going to pay for that and 
Yeah. So you negotiated that? Isn't it supposed to be like six times your monthly income or something? <laughs> you are a traditionalist, aren't you? I don't think it's that much these days. <laughs> uh, Yours would be about yeah. 2000 <laughs> I'll just go to Ben Bridge or something. <laughs> Lindsay, <laughs> through this whole process of writing these money diaries, what have you learned about that's, that maybe has changed your finances? I calculated, while I was writing the book, I figured out how much I did spend on lattes and this year, and that pretty much killed my latte habit. So, <laughs> like, all right, $500 at the local coffee shop is too much. I've also learned to just, throughout these conversations that I've had, I, you know, my husband and I are really good savers and that's how I, I fell into writing in the first writing about personal finance in the first place. I wrote a story for refinery about how we saved a lot of money to buy an apartment in New York. And I think that everybody has their own money regrets. And now we have a two year old and sometimes I wish that we had traveled a bit more and saved a bit less because it's not so easy to travel these days. And when I tell people that they always say, well, I traveled a lot and I wish I owned my own apartment. So, you know, it's it's interesting. Everybody has their own anxieties and their own stressors and nobody has this figured out. And it's not just what you're spending. I mean, you can perhaps increase your income by doing something on the side or improving your career or even asking a raise for a raise. I mean, how? what, what do you suggest about that? Right. Yeah. I really wanted to cover asking for raises in this book since it's geared primarily toward women. And we had research that showed that, you know, women were not speaking up and asking for raises. And as a result, it was having a huge impact, not only on their like immediate earning potential, but over their long-term earning potential. So I wanted to give very tactical advice about how to go in and be positive and have numbers that prove, you know, your worth to the company. It's, I think, important to remind people that as much as we oftentimes at companies like talk about that we're a family and things like that at the end of the day, you know, you need to prove to your boss why you're so vital to the company. Yeah, another thing too you wrote about is, you know, truly understanding your full compensation package. They might go to another firm that might have a higher paycheck, but all of a sudden maybe the health insurance is not great or, 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 or terrible you don't have or a company match, match in or, your 401k yeah. plan yeah. or, you know, there's all sorts of different things that come to the, the, the full picture. And I thought you, you laid it out um, really well. Yeah, I, I tell an embarrassing story about how I, I had a, a very cushy job my first job out of college where we got amazing bonuses and fully paid health care. And at one point we had a CSA, community supported agriculture. We got free vegetables every week. And when I changed jobs, I got a small raise, but I lost the bonus and the free health care. And it definitely had a huge impact on my finances that I wasn't prepared for. So I just want to remind people, like, these are things that actually cost money. I think when you're in your early 20s and in your first career, you're probably not thinking about that. Uh, we're talking to Lindsay Stanberry. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. The book is called Money Diaries. Lindsay, where can people get? Can they get this where all uh, wonderful books are sold? Yeah, wherever books are sold. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your local bookstore. Are you sure they're at my local? Did you check it out? <laughs> <laughs> I think so. And if they're not, you know what? You can order a copy. <laughs> and uh, refinery29.com. Dot com. Refinery29.com. Uh, Lindsay, thanks so much. This was a lot of fun. Thank you guys so much. Have a good one. All right. Happy holidays. All right. You Thank too. you, Lindsay. All right. Uh, that's it for us. Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas, Andy. Thank you, Joe. Merry Christmas I'm, to you. I'm very you. thankful you're in my life. Alan, not so much. No. Oh. <laughs>
That's yeah. right. It's, it's mutual. Yes. <laughs> all right. We will see you all next year. Thanks for listening. Show's called Your Money Well. Special thanks to our guest today, Lindsay Stanberry. Find her book, Money Diaries, in all fine bookstores. And check out the Money Diaries and all of Lindsay's other work at refinery29.com. Subscribe to the Your Money, Your Wealth podcast on your computer or your favorite smartphone app like Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts just by clicking the subscribe button at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Check out our ratings and reviews on iTunes and be sure to share YMYW with anyone who you think might enjoy it or learn from it. Email your money questions to info at purefinancial.com or call 888-994-6257. Listen next time for more Your Money, Your Wealth presented by Pure Financial Advisors. For your free financial assessment, visit purefinancial.com. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. What are you doing, New Year's? New Year's Eve. See you in 2019.